0: Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. This is it. We've made it to the final episode of The Three Imposters. It is going to be done today. Um I've got the the rest of the history of the young man with spectacles and then we have the adventure of of the deserted residence and we are done. I have been working at one of the uh vaccination sites that has been set up here in Georgia, and we've been getting a bunch of people vaccinated. We had a bunch of uh, second-shot Moderna's and first-shot Pfizer's, and I think we are just uh, uh, phasing phasing out Moderna, and we're only going to be doing the Pfizer vaccine. Um, that's just us. You may find Moderna anywhere else. Um, Johnson & Johnson, when it becomes available, you may find anywhere else, but uh, my place is just doing... Pfizer. That's it. Um, but over the past week we did be somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 people. Uh we did about five to six hundred a day. So uh that was really uh that was really nice and encouraging. And um we're still only in like phase one A, where it's just like you know, like the the most vulnerable people are available to get the vaccine and it's going to open up in the next week or so, and, they're, and they were telling us, this is a slow week, and next week's going to be really busy, we're going to be in like the thousands per day next week, so get ready. Apparently we have a partnership with a hospital somewhere, so, well that was weird, there was just a loud crashing noise outside, and I don't know what it was. Anyway, um, so we're going to be getting just a bunch of people vaccinated and ready to go, and that's uh, very exciting and encouraging. If you get the chance uh, to get vaccinated, um, look into it. Find out if you can get registered. Um, I, I actually looked into it for uh, my wife and found out that there's a, like a mailing list you can get on. That when you, you know you fill out the information about yourself and when you become available, they will email you and say, you are now eligible for the vaccine. Sign up here. And so uh, we got her all signed up and ready to go. Um, so when that comes up, she can go get a vaccine. Um And I think that is going to about do it for, you know, just that's just kind of my life right now. So, all right, let's let's get on with it and finish this thing. He told me to leave the museum at my usual hour, half past four, to walk slowly along the northern pavement of Great Russell Street and to wait at the corner of the street till I was addressed and then to obey in all things the instructions of the person who came up to me. I carried out these directions, and stood at the corner looking about me anxiously, my heart beating fast and my breath coming in gasps. I waited there for some time, and had begun to fear I had been made the object of a joke, when I suddenly became conscious of a gentleman who was looking at me with evident amusement from the opposite pavement of Tottenham Court Road. He came over, and, raising his hat, politely begged me to follow him, and I did so without a word, wondering where we were going and what was to happen. I was taken to a house of quiet and respectable aspect in a street lying to the north of Oxford Street, and my guide rang the bell, and a servant showed us into a large room, quietly furnished, on the ground floor. We sat there in silence for some time, and I noticed that the furniture, though unpretending, was extremely valuable. There were large oak presses, two bookcases of extreme elegance, and in one corner, a carved chest, which must have been medieval. Presently, Dr. Lipsius came in and welcomed me with his usual manner, and after some desultory conversation, my guide left the room. Then an elderly man dropped in and began talking to Lipsius, and from their conversation, I understood that my friend was a dealer in antiques. They spoke of the Hittite seal and of the prospects of further discoveries, and later, when two or three more persons had joined us, there was an argument as to the possibility of a systematic exploration of the pre-Celtic monuments in England. I was, in fact, present at an archaeological reception of an informal kind, and at nine o'clock, when the antiquaries were gone, I stared at Lipsius in a manner that showed I was puzzled, and sought an explanation. "'Now,' he said, "'we will go upstairs.' As we passed up the stairs... Lipsius lighting the way with a hand lamp, I heard the sound of a jarring lock and bolts and bars shot on at the front door. My guide drew back a baize door, and we went down a passage, and I began to hear odd sounds, a noise of curious mirth, and then he pushed me through a second door, and my initiation began. I cannot write down what I witnessed that night. I cannot bear to recall what went on in those secret rooms fast shuttered and curtained so that no light should escape into the quiet street they gave me red wine to drink and a woman told me as i sipped it that it was wine of the red jar that avalonius had made another asked me how i liked the wine of the fawns and i heard a dozen fantastic names while the stuff boiled in my veins and stirred i think something that had slept within me from the moment i was born it seemed as if my self-consciousness deserted me I was no longer a thinking agent, but at once subject and object. I mingled in the horrible sport, and watched the mystery of the Greek groves and fountains enacted before me, saw the reeling dance, and heard the music calling as I sat beside my mate. And yet I was outside it all, and viewed my own part an idle spectator. Thus, with strange rites, they made me drink the cup, and when I woke up in the morning, I was one of them, and had sworn to be faithful. At first I was shown the enticing side of things. I was bidden to enjoy myself and care for nothing but pleasure, and Lipsius himself indicated to me as the acutest enjoyment the spectacle of the terrors of the unfortunate persons who were, from time to time, decoyed into the evil house. But after a time it was pointed out to me that I must take my share in the work And so I found myself compelled to be in my turn a seducer. And thus it is on my conscience that I have led many to the depths of the pit. One day Lipsius summoned me to his private room and told me that he had a difficult task to give me. He unlocked a drawer and gave me a sheet of typewritten paper and had me read it. It was without place or date or signature and ran as follows. Mr. James Headley, FSA, will receive from his agent in Armenia on the twelfth instant a unique coin, the gold Tiberius. It bears on the reverse a fawn with the legend Victoria. It is believed that this coin is of immense value. Mr. Headley will come up to town to show the coin to his friend, Professor Memis of Cheney Street, Oxford Street, on some date between the 13th and the 18th. Dr. Lipsius chuckled at my face of blank surprise when I laid down this singular communication. "'You will have a good chance of showing your discretion,' he said. "'This is not a common case. It requires great management and infinite tact. I am sure I wish I had a panurge in my service, but we will see what you can do.' "'But is it not a joke?' I asked him. "'How can you know, or, or rather how can this correspondent of yours know, that a coin has been dispatched from Armenia to Mr. Hedley? "'And how is it possible to fix the period in which Mr. Headley will take it into his head to come up to town? "'It seems to me a lot of guesswork.' "'My dear Mr. Walters,' he replied, "'we do not deal in guesswork here. "'It would bore you if I went into all these little details, "'the cogs and the wheels, if I may say so, which move the machine. "'Don't you think it is much more amusing to sit in front of the house and be astonished "'than to be behind the scenes and see the mechanism?' Better tremble at the thunder, believe me, than see the man rolling the cannonball. But after all, you needn't bother about the how and why. You have your share to do. Of course, I shall give you full instructions, but a great deal depends on the way the thing is carried out. I have often heard very young men maintain that style is everything in literature, and I can assure you that the same maxim holds good in our far more delicate profession. With us, style is absolutely everything, and that... "'is why we have friends like yourself.' "'He had no doubt designedly left everything in mystery, "'and I did not know what part I should have to play. "'Though I had assisted at scenes of hideous revelry, "'I was not yet dead to all echo of human feeling, "'and I trembled lest I should receive the order "'to be Mr. Headley's executioner. "'A week later, it was on the 16th of the month, "'Dr. Lipsius made me a sign to come into his room.' "'It is for tonight,' he began. "'Please attend carefully to what I am going to say, Mr. Walters, and on peril of your life—for it is a dangerous matter—on peril of your life, I say, follow these instructions to the letter. You understand?' "'Well, tonight, at about half-past seven, you will stroll quietly up the Hampstead Road till you come to Vincent Street. Turn down here and walk along, taking the third turning to your right, which is Lambert Terrace.' Then follow the terrace, cross the road, and go along Hartford Street, and so into Lillington Square. The second turning you will come to in the square is called Sheen Street, but in reality it is more passage between blank walls than a street. Whatever you do, take care to be at the corner of this street at eight o'clock precisely. You will walk along it, and just at the bend where you lose sight of the square, you will find an old gentleman with white beard and whiskers. He will, in all probability, be abusing a cabman for having brought him to Sheen Street instead of Cheney's Street. You will go up to him quietly and offer your services. He will tell you where he wants to go, and you will be so courteous as to offer to show him the way. I may say that Professor Memis moved into Cheney's Street a month ago. Thus Mr. Headley has never been to see him there, and moreover he is very short-sighted and knows little of the topography of London. Indeed, he has quite lived the life of a learned hermit at Audley Hall. "'Well, need I say more to a man of your intelligence? "'You will bring him to this house. "'He will ring the bell, and a servant in quiet livery will let him in. "'Then your work will be done, and I am sure done well. "'You will leave Mr. Headley at the door and simply continue your walk, "'and I shall hope to see you the next day. "'I really don't think there is anything more I can tell you.' "'These minute instructions I took care to carry out to the letter.' I confess that I walked up the Tottenham Court Road by no means blindly, but with an uneasy sense that I was coming to a decisive point in my life. The noise and rumor of the crowded pavements were to me but dumb show. I resolved again and again in ceaseless iteration the task that had been laid on me, and I questioned myself as to the possible results. As I got near the point of turning, I asked myself whether danger were not about my steps. The cold thought struck me that I was suspected and observed, and every chance foot passenger who gave me a second glance seemed to me an officer of police. My time was running out. The sky had darkened, and I hesitated, half-resolved to go no farther, but to abandon Lipsius and his friends forever. I had almost determined to take this course when the conviction suddenly came to me that the whole thing was a gigantic joke, a fabrication of rank improbability. "'Who could have procured the information about the Armenian agent?' I asked myself. "'By what means could Lipsius have known the particular day "'and the very train that Mr. Headley was to take? "'How engage him to enter one special cab amongst the dozens waiting at Paddington?' "'I vowed it a mere Milesian tale, and went forward merrily, "'and turned down Vincent Street, and threaded out the route "'that Lipsius had so carefully impressed upon me. "'The various streets he had named were all places of silence,' "'and an oppressive, cheap gentility. "'It was dark, and I felt alone in the musty squares and crescents, "'where people pattered by at intervals, "'and the shadows were growing blacker. "'I entered Sheen Street, and found it, as Lipsius had said, "'more a passage than a street. "'It was a byway. "'On one side a low wall and neglected gardens "'and grim backs of a line of houses, "'and on the other a timber-yard. "'I turned the corner and lost sight of the square,' "'and then, to my astonishment, I saw the scene of which I had been told. "'A handsome cab had come to a stop beside the pavement, "'and an old man carrying a handbag was fiercely abusing the cabman "'who sat on his perch, the image of bewilderment. "'Yeah, but I'm sure you said Sheen Street, and that's where I brought you,' "'I heard him saying as I came up, "'and the old gentleman boiled in a fury and threatened police and suits at law. "'The sight gave me a shock,' and in an instant I resolved to go through with it. I strolled on and, without noticing the cabman, lifted my hat politely to old Mr. Headley. "'Pardon me, sir,' I said, "'but is there any difficulty? I see you are a traveller. Perhaps the cabman has made a mistake. Can I direct you?' The old fellow turned to me and I noticed that he snarled and showed his teeth like an ill-tempered cur as he spoke." "'A drunken fool has brought me here,' he said. "'I told him to drive to Cheney Street, and he brings me to this infernal place. "'I won't pay him a farthing, and I'm meant to give him a handsome sum. "'I'm going to call the police and give him in charge.' "'At this threat, the cabman seemed to take alarm. "'He glanced around as if to make sure that no policeman was in sight "'and drove off grumbling loudly. "'And Mr. Headley grinned savagely with satisfaction at having saved his fare "'and put it back one and sixpence into his pocket.' "'the handsome sum the cabman had lost. "'My dear sir,' I said, "'I am afraid that this piece of stupidity has annoyed you a great deal. "'It is a long way to chenney Street, "'and you will have some difficulty in finding the place "'unless you know London pretty well.' "'I know it very little,' he replied. "'I never come up except on important business, "'and I've never been to chenney Street in my life.' "'Really? I should be happy to show you the way. "'I have been for a stroll, "'and it will not at all inconvenience me to take you to your destination.' "'I want to go to Professor Mamus at number 15. "'It's most annoying to me. "'I'm short-sighted, and I can never make out the numbers on the doors.' "'This way, if you please,' I said, and we set out. "'I did not find Mr. Headley an agreeable man. "'Indeed, he grumbled the whole way. "'He informed me of his name, and I took care to say, "'The well-known antiquary.' "'And thenceforth I was compelled to listen to the history "'of his complicated squabbles with publishers "'who had treated him, as he said, disgracefully.' The man was a chapter in the irritability of authors. He told me that he had been on the point of making the fortune of several firms, but had been compelled to abandon the design owing to their rank ingratitude. Besides these ancient histories of wrong and the more recent adventures of the cabman, he had another grievous complaint to make. As he came along in the train, he had been sharpening a pencil, and the sudden jolt of the engine as it drew up at a station had driven the penknife against his face, inflicting a small triangular wound just on the cheekbone which he showed me he denounced the railway company and heaped imprecations on the head of the driver and talked of claiming damages thus he grumbled all the way not noticing in the least where he was going and so inamiable did his conduct appear to me that i began to enjoy the trick i was playing on him nevertheless my heart beat a little faster as we turned into the street where lipsius was waiting a thousand accidents i thought might happen some chance might bring one of hedley's friends to meet us perhaps though he knew not cheney street he might know the street where i was taking him in spite of his short sight he might possibly make out the number or in a sudden fit of suspicion he might make an inquiry of the policeman at the corner thus every step upon the pavement as we drew nearer to the goal was to me a pang and a terror and every approaching passenger carried a certain threat of danger I gulped down my excitement with an effort, and made shift to say pretty quietly, "'Number fifteen, I think you said. That is the third house from this. "'If you will allow me, I will leave you now. "'I have been delayed a little, and my way lies on the other side of Tottenham Court Road.' He snarled out some kind of thanks, and I turned my back and walked swiftly in the opposite direction. A minute or two later I looked round and saw Mr. Headley standing on the doorstep, and then the door opened and he went in. "'For my part, I gave a sigh of relief "'and hastened to get away from the neighbourhood "'and endeavoured to enjoy myself in merry company. "'The whole of the next day I kept away from Lipsius. "'I felt anxious, but I did not know what had happened "'or what was happening, "'and a reasonable regard for my own safety "'told me that I should do well to remain quietly at home. "'My curiosity, however, to learn the end of the odd drama "'in which I had played a part, stung me to the quick.' "'and late in the evening I made up my mind "'to go and see how events had turned out. "'Lipsius nodded when I came in "'and asked me if I could give him five minutes' talk. "'We went into his room and he began to walk up and down, "'and I sat waiting for him to speak. "'My dear Mr. Walters,' he said at length, "'I congratulate you warmly. "'Your work was done in the most thorough and artistic manner. "'You will go far. Look.' "'He went to his escritoire,' and pressed a secret spring, and a drawer flew out, and he laid something on the table. It was a gold coin, and I took it up, and examined it eagerly, and read the legend about the figure of the fawn. Victoria, I said, smiling, yes, it was a great capture, which we owe to you. I had great difficulty in persuading Mr. Headley that a little mistake had been made, that was how I put it. He was very disagreeable, and indeed ungentlemanly about it. Didn't he strike you as a very cross, old man? I held the coin, admiring the choice and rare design, clear-cut as if from the mint, and I thought the fine gold glowed and burned like a lamp. And what finally became of Mr. Headley? I said at last. Lipsius smiled and shrugged his shoulders. What on earth does it matter? he said. He might be here or there or anywhere, but what possible consequence could it be? Besides, your question rather surprises me. You are an intelligent man, Mr. Walters. Just think it over, and I'm sure you won't repeat the question. My, my, my dear sir, I said, I hardly think you are treating me fairly. You have paid me some handsome compliments on my share in the capture, and I naturally wish to know how the matter ended. From what I saw of Mr. Headley, I should think you must have had some difficulty with him. He gave me no answer for the moment, and began to walk up and down the room, apparently absorbed in thought. Well, he said at last. "'I suppose there is something in what you say. "'We are certainly indebted to you. "'I have said that I have a very high opinion of your intelligence, Mr. Walters. "'Just look here, will you?' "'He opened a door, communicating with another room, and pointed. "'There was a great box lying on the floor. "'A queer, coffin-shaped thing. "'I looked at it and saw it was a mummy case like those in the British Museum, "'vividly painted in the brilliant Egyptian colors. "'which I knew not what proclamation of dignity or hopes of life immortal. "'The mummy, swathed about in the robes of death, was lying within, "'and the face had been uncovered. "'You are going to send this away?' I said, forgetting the question I had put. "'Yes, I have an order from a local museum. "'Look a little more closely, Mr. Walters.' "'Puzzled by his manner, I peered into the face while he held up the lamp. "'The flesh was black with the passing of the centuries. But as I looked, I saw upon the right cheekbone a small triangular scar, and the secret of the mummy flashed upon me. I was looking at the dead body of the man whom I had decoyed into that house. There was no thought or design of action in my mind. I held the accursed coin in my hand, burning me with a foretaste of hell, and I fled as I would have fled from pestilence and death and dashed into the street in blind horror, not knowing where I went. I felt the gold coin grasp my clenched fist and threw it away. I knew not where, and ran on and on through by-streets and dark ways till at last I issued out into a crowded thoroughfare and checked myself. Then, as consciousness returned, I realized my instant peril and understood what would happen if I fell into the hands of Lipsius. I knew that I had put forth my finger to thwart a relentless mechanism rather than a man, My recent adventure with the unfortunate Mr. Headley had taught me that Lipsius had agents in all quarters, and I foresaw that if I fell into his hands, he would remain true to his doctrine of style, and cause me to die a death of some horrible and ingenious torture. I bent my whole mind to the task of outwitting him and his emissaries, three of whom I knew to have proved their ability for tracking down persons who, for various reasons, preferred to remain obscure. These servants of Lipsius were two men and a woman, and the woman was incomparably the most subtle and the most deadly. Yet I considered that I too had some portion of craft, and I took my resolve. Since then I have matched myself, day by day and hour by hour, against the ingenuity of Lipsius and his myrmidons. For a time I was successful, though they beat furiously after me in the covert of London. I remained perdue, and watched with some amusement their frantic efforts to recover the scent lost in two or three minutes. Every lure and wile was put forth to entice me from my hiding place. I was informed by the medium of the public prints that what I had taken had been recovered, and meetings were proposed in which I might hope to gain a great deal without the slightest risk. I laughed at their endeavors, and began a little to despise the organization I had so dreaded, and ventured more abroad not once or twice, but several times, I recognized the two men who were charged with my capture, and I succeeded in eluding them easily at close quarters, and a little hastily I decided that I had nothing to dread, and that my craft was greater than theirs. But in the meanwhile, while I congratulated myself on my cunning, the third of Lipsius's emissaries was weaving her nets, and in an evil hour I paid a visit to an old friend, a literary man named Russell, who lived in a quiet street in Bayswater. The woman, as I found out too late, a day or two ago, occupied rooms in the same house, and I was followed and tracked down. Too late, as I have said, I recognized that I had made a fatal mistake, and that I was besieged. Sooner or later I shall find myself in the power of an enemy without pity, and so surely as I leave this house I shall go to receive doom. I hardly dare to guess how it will at last fall upon me. My imagination, always a vivid one, paints to me appalling pictures of the unspeakable torture which I shall probably endure, and I know that I shall die with Lipsius standing near and gloating over the refinements of my suffering and my shame. Hours, nay, minutes, have become very precious to me. I sometimes pause in the midst of anticipating my tortures to wonder whether even now I cannot hit upon some supreme stroke, some design of infinite subtlety to free myself from the toils. But I find that the faculty of combination has left me. I am as the scholar in the old myth, deserted by the power which has helped me hitherto. I do not know when the supreme moment will come, but sooner or later it is inevitable, and before long I shall receive sentence, and from the sentence to execution will not be long. I cannot remain here a prisoner any longer. I shall go out tonight when the streets are full of crowds and clamors and make a last effort to escape. It was with profound astonishment that Dyson closed the little book and thought of the strange series of incidents which had brought him into touch with the plots and counterplots connected with the gold Tiberius. He had bestowed the coin carefully away, and he shuddered at the bare possibility of its place of deposit becoming known to the evil band who seemed to possess such extraordinary sources of information. It had grown late while he read, and he put the pocketbook away, hoping with all his heart that the unhappy Walters might, even at the eleventh hour, escape the doom he dreaded. ADVENTURE OF THE DESERTED RESIDENCE A wonderful story, as you say. An extraordinary sequence and play of coincidence. I confess that your expressions when you first showed me the gold Tiberius were not exaggerated. But do you think that Walters has really some fearful fate to dread? I cannot say. But who can presume to predict events when life itself puts on the robe of coincidence and plays at drama? Perhaps we have not yet reached the last chapter in the queer story. But look— "'We are drawing near to the verge of London. "'There are gaps, you see, in these serried ranks of brick, "'and a vision of green fields beyond.' "'Dyson had persuaded the ingenious Mr. Phillips "'to accompany him on one of those aimless walks "'to which he was himself so addicted. "'Starting from the very heart of London, "'they had made their way westward through the stony avenues, "'and were just now emerging from the red lines of an extreme suburb, "'and presently the half-finished road ended. "'A quiet lane began, and they were beneath the shade of elm trees. The yellow autumn sunlight that had lit up the bare distance of the suburban street now filtered down through the boughs of the trees and shone on the glowing carpet of fallen leaves, and the pools of rain glittered and shot back the gleam of light. Over all the broad pastures there was peace and the happy rest of autumn before the great winds begin, and afar off London lay all vague and immense amidst the veiling mist. "'here and there a distant window catching the sun and kindling with fire, "'and a spire gleaming high, and below the streets in shadow and the turmoil of life. "'Dyson and Phillips walked on in silence beneath the high hedges, "'till at a turn of the lane they saw a mouldering and ancient gate standing open, "'and the prospect of a house at the end of a moss-grown carriage-drive. "'There is a survival for you,' said Dyson. "'It has come to its last days, I imagine.' Look how the laurels have grown gaunt and weedy and black and bare beneath. Look at the house covered with yellow wash and patched with green damp. Why the very notice-board which informs all and in singular that the place is to be let, has cracked and half fallen. Suppose we go in and see it, said Phillips. I don't think there is anybody about. They turned up the drive and walked slowly towards this remnant of old days. It was a large straggling house with curved wings at either end, and behind a series of irregular roofs and projections, showing that the place had been added to at diverse dates. The two wings were roofed in cupola fashion, and at one side, as they came nearer, they could see a stable-yard and a clock-turret with a bell, and the dark masses of gloomy cedars. Amidst all the lineaments of dissolution, there was but one note of contrast. The sun was setting beyond the elm-trees, and all the west and the south were in flames, and on the upper windows of the house the glow shone reflected, and it seemed as if blood and fire were mingled. Before the yellow front of the mansion, stained, as Dyson had remarked with gangrenous patches, green and blackening, stretched what once had been no doubt a well-kept lawn. But it was now rough and ragged, and nettles and great docks and all manner of coarse weeds struggled in the places of the flower-beds. The urns had fallen from their pillars beside the walk, and lay broken in shards upon the ground, and everywhere from glass plot and path a fungoid growth had sprung up and multiplied, and lay dank and slimy like a festering sore upon the earth. In the middle of the rank grass of the lawn was a desolate fountain. The rim of the basin was crumbling and pulverized with decay, and within the water stood stagnant, with green scum for the lilies that had once bloomed there, "'and rust had eaten into the bronze flesh of the triton that stood in the middle, "'and the conch-shell he held was broken. "'Here,' said Dyson, "'one might moralize over decay and death. "'Here all the stage is decked out with the symbols of dissolution. "'The cedar and gloom and the twilight hangs heavy around us, "'and everywhere within the pale dankness has found a harbor, "'and the very air is changed and brought to accord with the scene.' "'To me, I confess, this deserted house is as moral as a graveyard, "'and I find something sublime in that lonely triton, "'deserted in the midst of this water-pool. "'He is the last of the gods. "'They have left him, and he remembers the sound of water falling on water "'and the days that were sweet.' "'I like your reflections extremely,' said Phillips, "'but I may mention that the door of the house is open.' "'Let us go in, then.' The door was just ajar, and they passed into the moldy hall and looked in at a room on one side. It was a large room going very far back, and the rich old red flock paper was peeling from the walls in long strips and blackened with vague patches of rising damp. The ancient clay, the dank reeking earth rising up again and subduing all the work of men's hands after the conquest of many years. And the floor was thick with the dust of decay And the painted ceiling, fading from all gay colours and light fancies of Cupid's in a career, and disfigured with sores of dampness, seemed transmuted into other work. No longer the Amorini chased one another pleasantly, with limbs that sought not to advance, and hands that merely simulated the act of grasping at the wreathed flowers, but it appeared some savage burlesque of the old careless world, and of its cherished conventions and the dance of the loves had become a dance of death. Black pustules and festering sores swelled and clustered on fair limbs, and smiling faces showed corruption, and the fairy blood had boiled with the germs of foul disease. It was a parable of the leaven working and worms devouring for a banquet the heart of the rose. Strangely, under the painted ceiling against the decaying walls, two old chairs still stood alone, "'the sole furniture of the empty place. "'High-backed with curving arms and twisted legs, "'covered with faded gold leaf "'and upholstered in tattered damask, "'they too were a part of the symbolism "'and struck Dyson with surprise. "'What have we here?' he said. "'Who has sat in these chairs? "'Who, clad in peach-bloom satin "'with lace ruffles and diamond buckles, "'all golden, a conde fleurettes to his companion? "'Phillips, we are in another age.' "'I wish I had some snuff to offer you, "'but failing that, I beg to offer you a seat, "'and we will sit and smoke tobacco. "'A horrid practice, but I am no pedant.' "'They sat down on the queer old chairs "'and looked out of the dim and grimy panes "'to the ruined lawn and the fallen urns "'and the deserted triton.' "'Presently Dyson ceased his imitation of 18th-century airs. "'He no longer pulled forward imaginary ruffles "'or tapped a ghostly snuff-box.' "'It's a foolish fancy,' he said at last. "'But I keep thinking I hear a noise like someone groaning. "'Listen.' "'No, I can't hear it now. "'There it is again. "'Did you notice it, Phillips?' "'No, I can't say I heard anything. "'But I believe that old places like this are like shells from the shore, "'ever echoing with noises. "'The old beams, mouldering piecemeal, yield a little and groan, "'and such a house as this I can fancy all resonant at night with voices.' the voices of matter so slowly and so surely transformed into other shapes, the voice of the worm that gnaws at last the very heart of the oak, the voice of some grinding on stone, and the voice of the conquest of time. They sat still in the old armchairs and grew graver in the musty ancient air, the air of a hundred years ago. I don't like the place, said Phillips after a long pause. To me it seems as if there were... "'sickly, unwholesome smell about it, a smell of something burning. "'You are right. "'There is an evil odor here. "'I wonder what it is. "'Hawk, did you hear that?' "'A hollow sound, "'a noise of infinite sadness "'and infinite pain broke in upon the silence, "'and the two men looked fearfully at one another, "'horror and the sense of unknown things "'glimmering in their eyes. "'Come,' said Dyson, "'we must see into this.' "'and they went into the hall and listened in the silence. "'Do you know,' said Phillips, "'it seems absurd, but I could almost fancy "'that the smell is that of burning flesh.' "'They went up the hollow-sounding stairs, "'and the odour became thick and noisome, "'stifling the breath, and a vapour, "'sickening as the smell of the chamber of death, choked them. "'A door was open, and they entered the large upper room "'and clung hard to one another,' shuddering at the sight they saw. A naked man was lying on the floor, his arms and legs stretched wide apart and bound to pegs that had been hammered into the boards. The body was torn and mutilated in the most hideous fashion, scarred with the marks of red hot irons, a shameful ruin of the human shape. But upon the middle of the body, a fire of coals was smoldering. The flesh had been burned through the man was dead but the smoke of his torment mounted still a black vapor the young man with spectacles said mr dyson the end of the three imposters by arthur mackin oh, <laughs> we made it yay <laughs> oh man it's done we finished it. We can move on to other stuff now. Um, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed the Three Imposters by Arthur Mackin. Um, if you uh, feel so inclined, please feel free to support me on Patreon. You can find me at patreon.com/slash/the-weird-tales-podcast. I have three different payment tiers: one dollar, three dollar, ten dollars. Um, $1 gets you is just general support. $3 gets you a thank you on the show and $10 gets you access to a bonus feed, which, uh, has a bonus story, uh, being read on it. Uh, we're a little over a quarter of the way through the story. I'm, I'm very excited. I'm very happy with how it's going. Um, for those of you who are at that Patreon tier, I hope you are enjoying it. Uh, we have lots more coming, um, and, uh, my wife is actually going to be reading a whole section of the story too, so you have that to look forward to national poetry month is coming up in a couple of weeks. I've got some really great poems all planned out. I'm really happy with the selection and the way the recordings are going. Um, so we've got that to look forward to. Other than that, thank you so much Hermagoras, for your support. Thank you. Pontius Fredrickson. Um, thank you. Andrew Buchanan, Damon Bowles. Thank you. Marco van Putin. Thank you so much. Ryan Patrick. Thank you. Matthias Hansen. Thank you. Alder Riley. Thank you so much. Mark Vincent. Thank you. Eric Braun. Thank you. And Chris Callie. Thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. Um, it means a lot to me that, uh, or that, that, you know, you feel the show is worthy of, of your time and money. And, uh, when I set up to do the Patreon, I really honestly did not expect to even be making this much. Um, but I'm sitting right at about a hundred dollars and I'm very, I'm, I'm very humbled and, and thankful to everybody who, uh, who, uh, kicks into the Patreon. Uh, please feel free to send me an email, theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com. You can leave me a rating and a review on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or uh, anywhere you uh, listen to the podcast. I would love to read any thoughts that you have. Um, and I think that will about do it for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week. da 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 Here's the bloops. Mr. James Headley, FSA, will receive from his agent in Armenia on the 12th. What is that short for? Okay, I looked it up and it means in its, I-N-S-T is short for instant, which in kind of um, this level of English, I'm not, uh, Victorian English, maybe? Um, it, uh, It means the 12th of this, so when you say 12th instant, it means the 12th of this month. If you were to say 12th Ultimo, it would be the 12th of last month. Anyway, more educational bloopers for everyone. You're welcome. There's that crashing noise again. And I've never been to Cheney's street in my life. Hey pal. How you doing? Do You want to go out? out? No, you're going to stay here? If you're going to stay here, you need to be quiet, okay? Cat's in here with me. In case you couldn't figure that out.